0: the politics, politics, politics podcast for February 11th, 2022. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young, joining you from a thawed Austin, Texas. Not exactly sunny. Well, it is sunny, but but not exactly warm, but certainly thawed. We are out of the freezing temperatures. The boil water notice has receded. Things are starting to get back to normal, which, by the way, I believe... Dooms Beto's campaign. Beto running against Greg Abbott. I think Beto really needed another crippling ice storm. Doesn't mediologically media, media look like that is going to be the case? Add that to everything else that is going on. I think Beto might be screwed. We got a great show, though. That is not Beto related. We're going to talk about COVID uh, specifically. The fact that the political winds are blowing toward a understanding that COVID is here and we need to return to mitigations are the exception and not the rule. However, the Biden administration seems a little slow on the uptake here. The realities of what governors are facing, what the White House will do, and the possible bridge between the two. Trying to refigure how the statistics look to get a rosier picture for the White House. Pelosi has caved. At least she says she will cave to the idea that Congress folk will not be able to trade individual stocks. This has been a particularly... Uh, A pernicious issue throughout COVID when members of our government knew about things beforehand and then enriched themselves by trading stocks about it. Pelosi had previously held up against it. All of this was started by our boy, Dave Leventhal, the money man. Big investigation, but we'll get into what Pelosi said and what it might actually mean. And finally, one of my favorite. Uh, uh, pejoratives in our modern discourse. Hashtag both sides. It is moral equivalency that gets people the most fired up. But what really is the idea of hashtag both sides? Where did it come from? Where is it now? Are we getting further away or closer to this being passé? With all of that, we will talk to our guest today, Damon Linker. He is a columnist of the week and an author about uh, a bunch of other stuff. Something to start us off, uh, because right before I started recording here, and again, this comes out on Friday, but we recorded a little bit earlier in the week, so I don't know whether or not these exact numbers are going to hold up, but at the point of our recording, uh, they do. It's the first time that I have noticed On the real clear politics average, that Joe Biden's approval rating has dipped below 40%. So again, this is an average of a bunch of different approval ratings. And as it stands right now on RCP, Joe Biden is at 39.8% approval rating. His disapproval is near its all time high of fifty-five uh at fifty-four point four percent of uh respondents disapproving. That is a a spread of fourteen point six percent. That's bad news bears, man. Uh uh that that ain't good. That means that on the average of these. Over half the nation disapproves. If you are one to subscribe to the idea that Democrats tend to do better in polling, then good golly, uh, uh, these numbers are, are, are even worse. But as we move into the midterms and specifically as establishment candidates, who would otherwise benefit from being close to the democratic power structure now have to make decisions on exactly how closely do they want to tie themselves to a president who is particularly unpopular. We are in for a very, very interesting few months. But More Americans are ready to begin the new normal in a world in which we understand COVID is here and we're just going to have to deal with it. What's notable is that Democratic politicians are starting to agree. The uh, New York Times' Nate Cohn noted in an uh, analysis this week, Citing a recent Monmouth poll showing seven of 10 Americans agree with the statement, quote, it's time we accept COVID is here to stay and we just need to get on with our lives. Furthermore, support for mask and vaccine mandates is rapidly declining. So let's take a look at where we are right now with COVID. Omicron is on the retreat and so is our winter surge, at least nationally. Certainly everything regionally is through their own different uh, spikes and everything. But if we add everything together, it looks as if we are on the other side. We hit our case count high on January 9th and our death count predictably two weeks later on January 26th. Omicron has indeed been less deadly than Delta, but that is not to say that it wasn't deadly at all. If the trends hold our most deadly day will have cost us 3,563 lives. That's the peak. 3,563 people dead, testing positive of COVID in one single 24-hour period. Now, that is only good news when you compare it to Delta. The death peak there was 4,439 dead in one 24-hour period. What we don't know for sure is exactly how much of our winter surge was Omicron and how much was Delta. Initial estimates for the dominance of Omicron were too aggressive, but it certainly overtook everything at at some point, and now is unquestionably the king strain. But the worst, on average, does appear to be behind us, and as I pointed out at the beginning of the segment. There's a desire to turn the page into an endemic society. So this is something that, that, that should be clear. When, when I think colloquially people are referring to an endemic disease versus a pandemic disease, really what you mean is that there's no way we are going to starve out COVID. That's the recognition. That we can mitigate it being bad around us But this thing is going to come and go. It's quite simply too contagious. And with an endemic society, we just simply have to understand that the surges of COVID in the future will be there, but we're going to default to a world with less or no virus specific restrictions as opposed to the opposite. Two weeks ago, a bipartisan contingent of governors visited the White House asking for Joe Biden to lead the quote unquote return to normalcy for blue state governors like New Jersey's Murphy and California's Newsom. They desperately don't want to appear more aggressive than the president when it comes to removing restrictions. What restrictions are we talking about? Well, specifically mandates. Both are vaccines and, in a more pressing matter, masks. As of now, it appears that the Biden administration is in no hurry to do much, which is true to form for them. One of the quintessential traits of this administration is to not be like its predecessor, leaping before it looks, but instead looking very deeply at a perspective leap For so long that everybody forgets that there was a potential leap in the first place. But while Biden can wait and see indefinitely, it appears, that is not a possibility for the governors. And many are making moves even if Biden isn't ready to. Murphy from Jersey, Delaware Governor John Charney, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont. Oregon Governor Kate Brown and California Governor Gavin Newsom have announced that they are lifting indoor mask restrictions. And by the time you hear this, it's likely that New York's Kathy Hockule and Illinois' J.B. Pritzker will have likely done the same. Hell, even Fauci is getting in on the endemic talking points. Quote, as we get out of the full-blown pandemic phase of COVID-19, which we are certainly heading out of, These decisions will increasingly be made on the local level rather than centrally decided or mandated. There will also be more people making their own decisions on how they want to deal with the virus, end quote. While uh, Fauci's talking points don't tend to be any more or less set in stone than, uh, you know, whatever the today's case count is. I wouldn't necessarily look at that as a, a a firm line in the sand, but it is interesting to hear Fauci mention it. So what is holding up the Biden administration? You would think, especially since we listed before that they aren't exactly the most popular people on the block, shouldn't they be racing to try and signal that with this virus we are at at least temporarily possibly forever, a time of peace. Well, two things pop to mind. First, Biden's burnt his hand on this stove before. The specter of his Independence Day 2021 victory dance over COVID has to be an embarrassment and a reminder that when it comes to this virus, it might be best to not say anything. Second, he wants better data. And this week, the administration assembled a task force of data scientists from the Health and Human Services and CDC to try and parse a very controversial and tricky stat. How many people are in a hospital because of COVID versus how many people are in the hospital with COVID? The idea being That somebody who comes in sick as a dog with COVID symptoms should be noted as different than somebody who comes in with a car wreck that happens to test positive for COVID. It is worth noting that Joe Biden is not the first president to try and sort these two out. Trump attempted to sort it out in 2020 and controversy, predictably for him, ensued. And I can understand why, especially in the early going. There is a level of value judgment to this process, specifically when you get to more complicated cases. Does somebody who had lung damage before coming into the hospital with a worsening of that lung damage test positive for COVID? Is he there because COVID made it worse? Would he be there if he had just gotten a common cold? Maybe. But now it's up to these government uh, data scientists to make the call. But still, there is no doubt that the worm has turned on a desire for a new normal. Biden needs only to look to Canada to see ugly scenes of protests against masks and mandates. And by the way, Prime Minister Trudeau's own party have begun to criticize their leader, for being too callous to the calls for a reduction in regulation. A backbencher spoke up uh, this week and said that Trudeau has used the mandates to be divisive. What I think, in terms of broad strokes we are seeing here, are that Democrats used to move toward restriction because it gave them political shelter. But if that refuge is now a liability, then the question isn't if they will relax their stances from the local to the federal level. It's only when. I have not seen this reported like this anywhere else. So I'm going to underline, bold, and italicize this next sentence. I mean, I guess you should. I think you should, if you are at a. Computer right now. If you're at work right now, I want you to type down what I am saying. And I want you to bold it, italicize it, and underline it. In fact, if you are in front of a computer right now, I want you to write down what I'm about to say and at reply me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. Nancy Pelosi Caves to Dave Leventhal of Insider. It is the Insider DC Press Bureau that put together an extraordinarily thorough investigation into exactly how members of Congress, both in the House and Senate, were investing in stocks and trading stocks, how they were reporting it, and sometimes they were not reporting it at all. It was follow-up questions by insider to Nancy Pelosi that sparked an entire controversy for which she was initially bristling against and now, according to Punchbowl News, has surrendered. So one more time, Nancy Pelosi caves to Dave Leventhal. Here's what Punchbowl reports. Pelosi is moving to ban stock trading on Capitol Hill after having consistently opposed such a measure. Uh, Pelosi's imprimatur, which was forced reported by Punchbowl News, follows building momentum in both parties, with progressive Democrats and MAGA Republicans uniting on a proposal to ban sitting lawmakers from trading individual stocks. Pelosi said this week that the bill could be put forward very soon. And indicates that it would that uh, she would support legislation that opposes more harsh fines for lawmakers who violate the Stock Act. The Stock Act basically demands that you report your holdings and also report any kind of trades. But I guess that would be a little bit easier to do if you were not allowed to trade stocks at all. Pelosi went further and said, "Okay, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. If you want to be all high and mighty." And we don't get to to trade stocks. Well, how about this? The bill should include restrictions on other branches of government, including the judiciary and the Supreme Court. Now, the reason this is happening is because there have been cross-the-aisle agreement. Both the populist ends of either party... I uh, love to point out corruption, and this is an easy thing to do. This is very swampy behavior. A reminder that many Congress folk over the last few years, specifically through the pandemic, have been rung up on these kind of charges, including now departed senators from Georgia, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue, as well as Democratic mainstays like Diane Feinstein. Now, Pelosi, when first asked about the insider investigation, responded, I will define it as glibly, that we live in a free market economy and lawmakers should be able to participate in that. By the way, uh, we should also point out that Pelosi herself does not appear to be the biggest stock trader. That does not mean that she doesn't benefit from the wealth that can be generated by the market. No, she can stay up to her armpits and Jenny's ice cream because her husband is a prolific stock trader. And it doesn't appear as if the ban that she is saying she would support would also include spouses or family members. By the way, Chuck Schumer told reporters this week that he would also like to see a ban get done. And if both of them agree and there's bipartisan support, that seems like something will be made into law. So with that, I would like to salute Dave Leventhal. I would like to salute everybody at the the Insider Bureau there in D.C., Good job. That is journalism moving politicians to actually act. Salute to you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to support this program, if you don't got any money, just do me a favor. And this week, head on over to the podcast platform of your choice. Apple, Spotify, uh, uh, any of any of the podcatchers and review this show. Review this show five stars. I'll go over there and I'll take a look at it next week and maybe we'll read some of the best ones uh, here in, in, in the ad slot next time. Cost you nothing but a little bit of time. If you appreciate uh, this independent outlet, then understand that the way that this gets out there to people is your word of mouth And the closest thing we have to any kind of algorithmic uh, uh, juice in in the bizarre world of podcasting is through the social proof of that five-star review when somebody stumbles upon this program. So thank you in advance for doing it. If you ain't got any money, go ahead and give us a review. If you do got some money, oh, baby. Oh, baby, you need to head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You got to get on our $3 tier. At that tier, you get two bonus podcasts each and every week. I know you guys hear me say this. There's somebody out there who's like, I don't know, man. That sounds good. I really like the show. I would like more. I just don't know if it's like going to be worth it. I just don't know if that $3, you know, they really going to be worth it. I just don't know. Well, I, I, let me tell you that the folks who have the $3 uh, uh, level, it's a pretty high retention rate. Like in general, this podcast has a shocking conversion of actual audience to Patreon. Like I look at a lot of other uh, uh, podcasts that have much larger audiences than I do. And I look at what, our audience is to patreon level and I-, I gotta say it's a lot I mean like you you guys represent on a tremendous level but also that means that the people that get on the patreon stay on the patreon they like that bonus content they like that Sunday show that lets you set up for the entire week, knowing what the government wants to get across as we can see whether or not they will be successful or if reality has other plans. That Thursday show, for all of the latest possible news, all you got to do is head on over right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Thank you to everybody. If you got money, if you ain't got money, your support means the world. And it's the only reason why I get to do this. Thank you very much. TakePoliticsSeriously.com One of the biggest uh, comments that I get on doing this show... Is that I am nonpartisan? And that's always a very interesting, uh, uh, you know, it's usually a compliment for for me, mostly because I don't know what anything else that covers the kind of stuff I would do would be. You know, if if I'm going to break things down, but I'm going to openly root for one side or the other, I think it actively works against the time and effort that I am putting into the product. You deserve to just kind of hear the way that I can break it down. And then in your head, you can add the salad dressing of partisanship. I'm just going to be those crunchy leaves. But one of the things that I sometimes get is an age-old pejorative. You are a both sideser. Hashtag both sides. There's a moral equivalency that you are laying out between something truly awful and something truly good. You are the funhouse mirror warping reality. And I got to say, it's one of the most fascinating concepts in our modern discourse. And here to talk about all of that with us is Damon Linker. He is an author and columnist for The Week, where he wrote about this very topic. Welcome to the show, Damon.
1: Great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So you wrote a column for The Week that I found to be particularly interesting and fascinating because... In the capital T, capital D discourse that is constantly ongoing in politics, there seems to be a particular pejorative uh, uh, that really rankles some people. And it is the phrase, sometimes hashtagged, both sides. Uh, uh, the the <laughs> argument that there is a, 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 a an equivocation between something that is uh, disguised cleverly as nuance, but in reality... Is only here to normalize something far more odious. Uh, can you can you just briefly uh, tell folks what what your point uh, about all this was in your column?
1: Sure. Well, um, the term "both sides" or "both sideism," I think, grew up uh, back in the day when a guy named David Broder had a column in the Washington Post. And David Broder was like an old style inside the Beltway Washington journalist who would write his column, often reported, often with blind quotes from congressmen and women and senators and presidential staffers. And he would tend to write columns that uh, treated the Democrats and the Republicans as kind of a priori, equal and the same, interchangeable with one another, as if he broke voter was floating in some Olympian uh, uh, kind of objective space above both parties and had no personal opinions himself at the time. Um, Democrats often would get irritated at this because this was in the era of the nineties with uh, the contract with America, mm-hmm. Newt Gingrich coming to town, the Republicans taking over Congress for the first time in 40 years. And Democrats were saying, you know these people are are trying to impeach President Bill Clinton. We wouldn't do that to their side. They're so ruthless. They they defend you know the crazy Cretinous religious right. Mm-hmm. We are just decent people trying to help Americans live their lives and and put food on the table. There's no equivalence between these. Why does Broder do this? And so this became known as both sidesism or Broderism back in the day. Now. David Broder has been dead for quite a while. I don't remember how long, roughly a decade, probably. But especially since the rise of Donald Trump, this has kind of jumped into hyperspace as as far more of a severe takedown where the center left responds to any indication that, well, anything written from the point of view of saying, well, the Democrats say this and then the republicans say that yeah. as illegitimate that that this is assuming that the two parties are equal in their moral and ethical legitimacy when in fact say these critics The Democrats, for all their foibles, are a serious Democratic political, small D Democratic political party trying to do the nation's business. And the Republicans are some kind of insurrectionary, authoritarian, um, kind of uh, totally unwilling to engage with facts truth, science or anything worthwhile and actually are out to like destroy the country. And so these two things cannot be equated. We have one party on one side, the Democrats, and on the other side, we have this kind of malignant force (laughs) that will destroy America. And that has to be the kind of uh, prior assumption in discussing and covering politics and so, anyone who writes something that is a little bit more even handed, or even that tries, to you know, we had all these features in daily newspapers during the Trump years, especially the first couple of years. Like, oh, the diner what, feature. Yes, exactly. Who feature. are these? Who are these Trump voters? Let's <laughs> send someone out to Akron, Ohio, to walk into a diner and talk to these average Americans in quotes, yeah. and and find out what. Why did you vote for Donald Trump? And then stroke our chins and write a very concerned, frowning essay uh, at great length about this mysterious Trump voter, treating them with respect, trying to how we must understand what's going on in their minds. Now, the people critical of this tend to the view that, well, of course, they're racists. That's why they voted for Trump. Trump is a know nothing. He's xenophobic. He's racist. And they must be that way, too, if they were willing to vote for him. So that's what it is, and then I wrote a column about this. But you might want to ask me a question about that before I keep rambling.
0: No, no, no. I, I have I have I have a million different things directions that that I that I want to go here. Uh, and I guess my first is this because I want to have a larger journalism discussion. But is both sides, as we understand it, and you you categorized it as a a tends to be a center left. Uh, 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 idea or, or insult is that because there is in general, just more media discussion or media expectation on the left. Whereas the right, even in, in fairly mainstream uh, sources tend to be just wholly critical of mainstream media establishments. So they don't expect much from it, but it is a center left audience that wants more out of institutions that on some level they care for and expect something from.
1: Well, as with most complex questions, I'm sure there are many explanations. I guess the one that I gravitate to has to do with the difference in sensibility. Okay. Um, among the two sides, if you will, um, Both sides. They Uh have different sensibilities. So Republicans of any stripe, whether more traditional Reaganite or Trumpian Republicans, tend to sort of concede and assume that there are two parties, there are two reigning ideologies in American politics, and it's kind of trench warfare between them. The idea is to win power over the other side and hold it as long as they can. Democrats because they come from a tradition of ideological progressivism and and uh, the root of that word progressivism is progress tend to have a kind of unspoken assumption that history is moving in their direction yeah. that it can be dialectical. There can be steps back before step forward. But the overall march of history is in their direction. And they are, in that sense, going to win. And when they do, that will be a triumph of goodness and justice and morality. Like this is Obama's line, which I think he cribbed from Martin Luther King, that history's arc bends toward justice, this kind of deep seated conviction that they're on the right side of history history, but the flip side of that is that anyone who opposes them is on the wrong side of history. They're, they're archaic. They believe in things that are outdated. They must be surpassed. They're reactionary. In other words, reacting to progress, which yeah. we should be contributing to uh, on the more positive side. So that has the consequence that, The the less center left progressives tend to look at their opposition, not just as kind of fact. Well, yeah, we we have part of the country on our side and then there's that other part of the country on the other side. It's we're the right side, meaning correct side and the other side are somehow evil they're 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 morally defective or maybe they're ignorant and just need to be educated about what's true they're being deceived by fox news and the kind of right wing noise machine whatever however you couch it i do think there is that presumption and then it's been added in the trump years with the fact that the form that Republican politics has take has been more malignant. It has been very uh, polarizing, very insulting to journalists, to anyone who doesn't support Trump. He would take to his Twitter account and denounce all of his opponents constantly. Yeah, um, that has the effect of making it look like the opposition to the center of left is kind of, well, frankly, a coalition of assholes. It can really feel like that. I mean, I wrote a column a a couple, probably about 18 months ago before the last election about how Trump was marshalling the jerk vote, like basically like all the people who are just pissed off and want to put, you know, your feelings bumper stickers on their pickup trunks and drive around kind of sticking their middle finger up at uh at uh, people on the highway who don't agree. Um that, so that dynamic has really poisoned things and made it much more challenging to try to stake out a kind of more um uh above the fray position.
0: Let me let me talk about kind of how we cover things in journalism in general that uh, political journalism, as I have I have more specialized with this podcast, has fascinated me largely because it, like any other very specific, very insular industry, is very much in need of coverage the likes of which that you would read in Variety or or, or a, a air conditioner uh, a trade magazine that covers the price of tin and stuff like that. There is a lot of there is a desire and need for a lot of real x's and o's, who's in power, who's out of power, what what these things might mean. And yet, the grand desire for this kind of of material is especially post-Trump when kind of everything became politics, very 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 partisan trench warfare if not zealot uh, fans of politicians and parties. And so the 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 tenor of almost all coverage became more catered toward that. It, it became less about, oh, well, uh, this senator needs to watch his, his his right flank because he might face a primary challenger and more uh, uh, let's ask Kevin McCarthy for the fiftieth time what uh, he thought about Marjorie Taylor Greene's lunch because that is a, a a a possible shame and a quote from him that would be controversial would move that story uh, uh, forward. Do you see that that journalism in general on the political side has has tended more toward a if not opinionated than certainly salacious? Uh, uh direction, even though there still is probably a bigger need than ever for the nuanced understanding of why our government is, I don't know, operating the way it does.
1: Well, yeah, I do think that. And that's part of the dynamic of the of the Trump years and the damage that it has done to uh, journalism and our political culture in a lot of ways. I mean, The story of journalism, the kind of potted history of it uh, in the 20th century down to today is sort of that... Uh, prior to the end of World War II, journalism was very much a kind of ragged trade. It was basically like a guy often kind of drinks a lot, hangs around, talks to people around City Hall, gets some grub from them, jots down some notes over his drinks in the bar and a notepad, goes back, stays up late with lots of cigarettes, typing out his story and it shows up in the paper just sort of as a kind of um, like a news blotter for the local people people to read what's going on at Capitol, you know, on Capitol Hill, City Hall, that kind of thing. After World War II, there became a kind of nobler ideal of what a journalist is. And that's where you start to get the ideal of disinterestedness, objectivity. The journalist kind of sits back and tries to professionally assess what's going on and tell uh, an informed population about the political news of the day, so that they can be uh, virtuous, active citizens in a liberal democratic regime and government, uh, which is in contrast to the uh, the totalitarian communists on the other side that don't have a freedom of the press, and and then this gets then mixed up with the Vietnam War, civil rights protests, so that by the latter decades of the twentieth century, the ideal of being a journalist is to to really play an essential role, the fourth branch of government, as it were, in the functioning of a, of a good uh, civically upstanding political community. And so there's a lot of idealism among journalists. And what has ended up happening is that because Trump was so offensive, because he did come down that escalator when he announced his campaign in the summer of 2015 and, 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 you know, talked about Mexican rapists on the border and building a wall and always kind of insinuated racist things and was so outrageous and so attacking toward the attacked the media so vociferously. When he won, there was a kind of shock that, oh, my goodness, we can't just cover that guy and then the democrats as if they're somehow equivalent if i believe that the press has a role to play in in creating an upstanding civically virtuous political community i'm on the side of one of these parties and arrayed against the other party so in that sense being quote both sides or striving to you know, stake out a kind of an Olympian perspective looking down on both parties as somehow equivalent is to be kind of complicit in a lie for a lot of journalists, because the truth is that we now, as I said earlier, now it seems to be that only one party cares about You know, informing the citizens of the country about the truth about the danger of of that is posed by the other party and so forth. And so What we've ended up with is we've kind of combined this high minded, civically noble vision of what journalism is with a kind of political reaction to the ugliness of a lot of what Trump was doing when he was president. And the end result has been a much more partisan press than I think we had before that.
0: But as you pointed out, you know this—the the origins of this particular issue was something that came in with you know a, a Newt Gingrich, and and certainly. Uh, conservative media stretching all the way back to, you know, the early 80s with with, you know, Rush Limbaugh and, uh, uh, you know, even more uh, stayed versions of it through various different conservative publications have long drawn the ire of various different uh, 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 liberal archetypes, uh, I guess, is is part of. The, the flattening that we have seen in our modern world where now everybody is competing for attention on the internet, on Twitter, on Facebook, a uh, Ben Shapiro can punch at the exact same weight there that the New York times can, can, can do that, that they can buy the exact same ads to generate the exact same amount of, of traffic with, with, with prospective readers. Is that also journalistically part of the, the state of emergency that now what, uh, and if we're going to assume that most uh, uh, mainstream uh, organizations are staffed by largely liberal people, and I will state that as somebody who went to journalism school where everybody I knew was liberal and now they work in all the mainstream media places uh, – like, that there's there's now, like, they don't have the advantage. They don't have the nightly news anymore. They don't have the the or the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post don't matter in the way that they used to be, if not a final arbiter for what were happening, certainly the biggest. And, and they had their, an ideological hegemony that was then challenged by an outside force. And now, not only is that upside down, but you have the biggest upset in political history with a politician for which— No matter where you stand on him is unlike any that we have seen before having success, the likes of which was shocking and stunning.
1: Yeah, no, I agree with everything you said. That the the story of the decline of gatekeepers in journalism, the the concept that there are that the journalists, like as you said, like when when I was raised, I grew up in the '70s uh, and and '80s, and back then, you know, I I grew up at first in New York City, and even in New York City, there were basically just a handful of TV channels. You had CBS, yeah. NBC, and ABC, the PBS channel, and then that was pretty much it and a few local stations that usually piggybacked on the on the major ones and and so and then for newspapers we had the the new york city newspapers and that was it like i couldn't go online and see what the washington post was running that day or the la times or anything else so all i had was this limited number of outlets and so that gave them tremendous power if if you wanted to uh get noted in the news if you uh if you wanted to work for news organizations those were if you wanted to be covered in in what you're doing you had to be covered by them those were your options and there were no others what we've seen with the rise of the internet is exactly what you said the proliferation of other outlets many of which are right of center and they have they rose up in part to challenge the hegemony of those mainstream, uh, you know, big television networks, their news organizations and the newspapers, also magazines, Time Newsweek uh, and a few others that were there in the middle decades of the 20th century. The, The kind of Fox News with Rush Limbaugh, with all the right wing websites that are there, plus people like Ben Shapiro, whom you mentioned, all of them use their outlets and the social media infrastructure Structure that has grown up around them to reach their audiences without having to go through those mainstream gatekeepers. So what you have... I mean, I, I, I sort of get irritated at some on the right who are always hammering this point about the liberal media, the liberal media. Well, OK, <laughs> yeah, yeah, the liberal media, but the conservative media is also huge now. We basically have yeah. two entirely different media ecosystems. You have the so-called mainstream media, which is center left to left, uh, actually is t- for the most part to the left of the Democratic Party party even in a lot of ways that includes the major networks i mentioned cnn msnbc uh, as well as uh, npr and the pbs stations they're all there doing a version of what they always used to do but now a little bit more politicized than before on the left and then on the right you have tons of stuff, everything from Fox News down through whoever's replacing Rush Limbaugh now that he's died and all the, the whole network of talk radio, right wing talk radio, all the websites from National Review to the Federalist and other places. Mm-hmm. And people like like Ben Shapiro, who now who started out uh, kind of at Breitbart, but now has the Daily Wire and and. Ben Shapiro has, I don't know how he's managed it, but he has incredible reach through Facebook. If you look at the top 10 most liked and shared items on Facebook on any given day, usually eight out of 10 are Ben Shapiro pieces or daily wire pieces. So we have these two competing ecosystems that are, I think, roughly equally matched. Um, I think the New York Times is bigger uh, than most of them. let let let
0: Let me pause you right there. Uh, because I think that that's a fascinating uh, uh, idea and question. But uh, if we say equally matched, are we talking about in influence in
1: audience? I, I think both. I mean, in in both influence and audience, but it's a different influence, different audiences. Yeah. So the mainstream media is listened to by most politicians. Although of all, you know, Republicans also have an ear to the. F- This world as well. But when it comes to actual news, like what's really happening in the world, they still look at the New York Times and and a lot of the big, uh, big places for their factual news. Then it's also people who are educated, college educated, um, who live tend to live in cities and suburbs. Um, tend to be center left, uh, in their leanings, uh, some in the center to center right also bleed over into mainstream media. Then on the right, you of course have the right as well as other demographic groups. You have, uh, rural people, often people in exurb areas. So further out suburbs and especially mm-hmm. newer cities of the West, the Intermountain West, uh, and the Midwest. Um, and And so... And then, of course, again, all of those kind of mainstream politicians among Republicans who will get their hard news still from the mainstream media outlets, but have Fox News blaring from their office television day and night so that they can stay on top of what all of the people on there are saying, because it's presumed that those people are more in touch with what the voters at home are thinking and feeling and reacting to. So I don't and I don't want to make any kind of hard and fast Claim about literally How many people are listening to Each Um, We we often overestimate this like people Talk about how Tucker Carlson has so Much influence and he does (laughs) but he Also only is watched by between Three and four million people a night When even the kind of Kind of shriveled Up remnants of the nightly news Broadcasts on CBS NBC and ABC are watched by Two or three times that many People every night so the Numbers might not match up between right and kind of center left mainstream media, but the impact on the kind of political world, uh, the the right wing media has a tremendous influence there, Um, and we can see that in in kind of the reaction to COVID nineteen, the pandemic, the vaccines, and so forth, and we can talk about that too if you'd like. I
0: think that that is a fascinating the fascinating was fascinating thing is that there is a copacetic nature to the fact that we have created two separate ecosystems because the favorite topic of each ecosystem is the other ecosystem you know the the yeah. the right wing ecosystem loves to talk about all of the ample foibles of the left wing ecosystem and the left wing ecosystem the same but in reverse when it comes to all the right. damage that is being done by the other so I, I think that we are in a very interesting time, but we're, we're we're kind of getting close to the end. And I want to get to something that that you really made the point in your in your column and that in our modern world, in the, the year of our Lord 2022, we are in more need of, quote unquote, both sides, nuanced kind of coverage and conversation about stuff because. We are in a time of great change. We are in a time of of uh, uh, trying to pin down what's right and what's factual. It's easier than ever to, uh, uh, you know, while rumors can be dispersed easier than they have ever been in our, our Internet world, you can also be fed lies faster than than you ever can. Do you think that we are getting closer to a world where that is more either financially rewarded or culturally, uh, culturally rewarded? Or are we getting further away from a <laughs> both side, a a renaissance for the both sides?ers
1: Well, I, I think um, my view of it, I, I the, the metaphor that I like to use is focus on an old fashioned uh, 35 millimeter camera. You know how when you're looking, if you have a certain uh, uh large lens on a camera, you can look out at a field and you have a tree line in the distance and then various objects coming up until you're to like a tree stump only 10 feet in front of you. And you can adjust the focus so that the tree lines in focus or any of the intervening things are or that tree stump. And as you do, the other thing becomes blurry. Similarly, you can put on other Kinds of lenses that enable you to take a picture of the whole scene near to Mm -hmm. far and keeping them in focus. I'm all in favor. I'm a pluralist in lots of lenses. Mm -hmm. So I've written lots of columns over the last, say, six years that are extremely critical of Trump, extremely critical of trends on the right that I think are feeding into dangerous trends. Uh, We saw what happened on January 6th last year, I think was genuinely terrifying and a very ominous uh, sign for the future of American politics. I think if Trump runs again, things could get very, very nasty, even nastier than they already have. And that's bad and it needs to be talked about. So I'm not saying we have to refrain from doing that. But that's one lens. There are other lenses that we should put on that camera periodically that enable us to step back and say, well, you know what? And this goes to what uh, the main example that I used in my column. We keep hearing from the center left that only one party in America believes in democracy anymore because the Republicans are just an authoritarian movement now. Well, in some respects, there's some truth to that. but. Actually, if you look at the history of both parties, you can say that there is a complicated relationship to democracy. They're ambivalent and they're ambivalent in different ways. Republicans do have a history of being more skeptical of majoritarian democracy. On the other hand, since Reagan won a huge landslide in 84, which followed on the landslide that Nixon had in uh, 72, both Mm -hmm. of which were around 60% of the vote, something we haven't seen in a long, long time, that made Republicans also sometimes very pro-majority. They talked about how they were the moral majority of America and could win if only they had more elections and they campaigned well. Uh, So it's a complicated story. Similarly, Donald Trump, when he did his shenanigans on uh, leading up to uh, January 6th, when he did that, he wasn't saying, I should remain president despite the fact that I lost. He wasn't saying get rid of the election. I should just be a dictator now. He was saying delusionally, I believe that I should remain president because I actually won. I won the election. Now, that is a fantasy. There was no evidence of it and so forth. But It is interesting and noteworthy that he was not making an argument in favor of a dictatorship. He was making an argument about better vote counting to be more Democratic, more accurately Democratic. Similarly, on the left the Democrats since the progressive movement and the early decades of the 20th century have been very ambivalent about uh, democracy, about wanting there to be judges on the Supreme Court who will sometimes overturn Democratic will, like they did in Brown v. Board of Education, like they did in Roe v. Wade and many other things. Uh, The the center left is very much in favor of of putting experts in positions of power, uh, bureaucrats to get things done for the common good and so forth. So that shows not that the Democrats, uh, you know, aren't all things considered less dangerous than the Republicans or the Republicans aren't more dangerous, but that the story is more complicated and it's worthwhile putting on that lens to study it now and again.
0: A point. Well made by Damon Linker, who is, uh, of course, an author and a columnist for the week. Uh, Thank you so much, man, for taking uh, time out of your day and and talking about this idea more. I I had a great time.
1: Thanks. I love being here and invite me back anytime.
0: And that wraps it up for us today. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. Our show was edited by my boy, Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank Mr. Damon Linker, you can do so by heading on over to px3guest.com. You want to email the show? Do so. Theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter. Or at least they hit the show up on Twitter at px3tweets. You can find me on Twitch, live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays at px3live. And... You can share this podcast with your friend and family and clergy at px3podcast.com. Find all the merch that you would ever need for our show at politicsmerch.com. You want to support me with a one-time, one time, one time donation, you can do so. Paypal.me slash pay jury on Venmo. It is Justin Dash Young-20. My Cash App is PX3cash. And you can hit me up with any kind of physical item or fiat currency. P.O. Box. 15 31 84 Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, if you want to get bonus content, the only place to do it is at TakePoliticsSeriously.com $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Idris, Arzl- <laughs> Idris Arzlandian. DJ Katie Mack, Meister, Dr. G, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicetti, 70s TV salesman, spy. D, really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dot com, Junkie, DP4 Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Berkeley Steven, Diana Skating Scowls. Katie Stetch. She's the best. Love Katie. Double K Ranch, EO Pinball Shop, John, the the Opposable Thumbs for Dogs Foundation, Super Zoomy, Neil Patel, Charles, Darren, Olin, and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Matt, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Richard, D-Laser, Just Another Pilot, Middle Age, Mike, the Jen, J-Pink, and Andrew. You want to join their ranks? Well, hell, there's just one easy way to do it. Head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Sign up at the $10 tier. That's it, and that's all when it comes to this week's worth of PX3 content barreling through the weekend. Super Bowl weekend, by the way. I like the Rams laying the points. I like the Rams laying the points. I I I don't think that uh, I don't I don't think that 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 the Bengals are going to be able to uh to hang with them. But I tried to be nice to the Bengals fans uh, this week, but playing Welcome to the Jungle and everything. So uh, I do have, I do have a little bit of a soft spot. I'm a, I'm a Steelers fan, so I can't really like the Bengals. But I do have a little bit of a soft spot in my heart for the Cincinnati Bengals. Anyway, till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying uh, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that covers all
1: free.